0: you worried about it? Uh, Because I'm worried about cross-contamination issues because I don't see that GM crops and non-GM crops are able to coexist in agriculture due to seeing what's happened in the U.S. and Canada.
3: The prospect of genetically modified GM crops has prompted protests all over the world for some time now. This one's in London. The issue of GM
1: food sparks passionate debate on both sides. Those who favor the development of genetically modified crops argue that they will help feed the world. Others say that technology is unsafe and unregulated and will go so far as to demonstrate publicly against it.
3: We'll do our best to parse the complex GM food debate in this hour of Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking from Big Picture Science. I'm Seth Shostak.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. We're in a grocery store right now. And many of these items on the shelf here have GM foods in them.
3: Right. Engineered corn or soybean, look at this label here, yeah, they're the most popular. The Grocery Manufacturers Association estimates that at least one-third of all processed foods contain GMOs, so chances are you've eaten some. There's no comprehensive list of exactly which foods are genetically engineered, but, for example. Corn goes into the production of high fructose corn syrup, like in this package of cookies here. And and these things are everywhere.
1: And soybeans are in a lot of vegetarian foods. So should we be worried? And should we give up eating these foods? Well, you might want to give up high fructose corn syrup because it's sugary and it's not the healthiest choice. But should you quit cold turkey because it might contain GMOs?
3: Which reminds me, I need to pick up a cold turkey before we go. I assume it's down in the cryogenic foul aisle. Well, we'll look at what the science says about the safety of GM foods on human health, on the environment, and whether this stuff should be labeled. Also, why some say the issue is not the safety of the technology but really the conduct of the handful of biotech companies that control it.
1: Plus a filmmaker on the effects of GM technology among farmers in India.
3: And genetic engineering on Mars. And some would claim that this technology is from another planet, but not all opinions on GM foods are well informed on either side of the
2: debate. It's a myth to suggest that there is a scientific consensus supporting genetic engineering and agriculture.
0: Well, you know, you hear this idea that they're not tested, when in fact genetically engineered crops are virtually the only type of crop that is tested.
4: The issue of the safety of genetically engineered plants is entirely distinct from who controls the market for the seeds, for example, whether it's under control with big corporations or not, whether something can be done about that.
0: People tend to polarize the issue and sort of lose the specificity of the discussion and then it's difficult to have rational discussions.
1: Let's look at the science of the technology first. Now in front of us are row after row of processed foods, that some of which contains genetically modified ingredients. This is a pretty reasonable statement to make, since according to a 2010 biotech report, of the world's crops were GM foods.
3: Well, okay, so let's get to the basics. I mean, what is genetic engineering? And how does it compare with conventional breeding? You know, when you cross one variety of sweet pea with another variety of sweet pea to get the sweetest sweet peas.
1: Pamela Ronald is a professor in the Department of Plant Pathology and the Genome Center at the University of California, Davis. And she's co-author of Tomorrow's Table, Organic Farming, Genetics, and the Future of Food and she says there's
0: a difference between conventional breeding and genetic engineering the main differences are the specificity so with conventional breeding you introduce lots of uncharacterized genes into the genome when you make when you pollinate between different varieties with genetic engineering you introduce a very well characterized gene usually just one gene or two gene maybe three genes So you introduce that in very specifically. And the other big difference is that with conventional breeding, the source of the gene to be introduced is usually introduced from fairly closely related species. With genetic engineering, genes from any species can be introduced into a crop. But to be clear, traditional plant breeding is a form of genetic
1: modification.
0: Yes, so everything that we eat has been genetically altered in some way. Everything you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner has been developed through what we call conventional breeding, which includes lots of different techniques, and all those techniques genetically alter the food, and virtually nothing we eat is found in nature today.
3: And I would doubt that this uh, cheddar and bacon cheese spread here is found anywhere in nature.
1: Oh, does it really say cheddar and bacon? Yeah, it does.
3: Frankly, I find it appealing. And, And that also means that the apples in this applesauce, well, even if they're not genetically modified, they've been subjected to conventional breeding, which is a kind of genetic selection or cross-breeding, you know, to make crispier apples. With
1: genetic engineering, you can be more precise about the traits you select for, and you can bring in wholly novel traits. If you want to breed a plant that's resistant to a certain kind of pest, say, you insert a gene from another species that is resistant to that pest. Dr. Ronald does genetic work on rice, and along with Indian and Bangladeshi scientists, She isolated a gene in a wild species of rice that resists bacterial blight of rice,
0: which devastates rice crops in those countries. And so with genetic engineering, what we're able to do is actually go into the genome of that wild species and cut out the gene. We use enzymes that actually can cut the gene out. And then we engineer that into the cultivated variety Um, There's different ways that you can do it. One way is to just sort of shoot the gene into the cultivated variety. The other method, which we use in my laboratory, is you, you take a naturally occurring soil bacterium, which introduces the gene for you. And so what geneticists have done is they've taken advantage of this bacteria, and they splice out the genes that the bacteria usually delivers into plants and you put the gene you want to be delivered into plants and then you simply mix that engineered bacteria with some rice tissue and the bacteria does the work and then you grow up an entire plant. So in
1: this way the bacteria is a bit like a UPS truck. It's going to stop by your house anyway. In this case it's going to go to the into the rice cell anyway. And through genetic engineering, you can put in the gene that you want it to deliver, and it does it for you.
0: That's exactly right.
1: And now this crop is what? What properties does it now have?
0: It has all the exact same properties that it had before, but one additional property, which it's resistant to this disease.
3: And this is what you find with GM crops. I mean, they have qualities that evolution could never or might never produce. BT cotton, for example, it's engineered to produce BT toxins. The trait kills some insects and it comes from the bug Bacillus thuringiensis. Soybeans, rice, corn, alfalfa, sugar beet crops have been engineered to withstand a number of threats that can devastate them. Drought, insects, flooding, salt, herbicides. But we're not standing out in the fields at the moment. We're in this grocery store. And as these crops make their way into the food we're buying, the question is, how safe are they to eat?
1: Ronald Lindsay is president and CEO of the Center for Inquiry, a nonprofit educational organization. His degree is in bioethics, and he's researched GM crops for his book, Future Bioethics, Overcoming Taboos, Myths, and Dogmas.
3: Ron, I'll just ask you straight out, is it safe to eat genetically engineered food?
4: Absolutely. That question really has been resolved. And I wish it would just be put to rest, put away, you know, the scientists have looked at this again and again and again, and there is no safety issue. Multiple reports by the National Academy of Sciences and other bodies, there have been zero, zero illnesses traced to consumption of GM or GE foods, which are quite prevalent in the United States
3: could it not be argued that it's maybe too soon to tell? And if uh, we develop the technology of genetic engineering of crops and so forth, we might be adding more than one gene to a plant. Perhaps we do that already. And of course, as we know from, you know, sequencing uh, genomes and trying to link those to disease, you know, genes can have very subtle effects and maybe, maybe there is a danger and we just haven't found it yet.
4: There's always a possibility of a hidden danger, but that be true with any type of enterprise. And there are people who say, yes, we shouldn't proceed with GE plants on that basis. They use the so-called precautionary principle, which basically says if there's any risk of harm, those who want to use this new technique have to prove that there isn't any harm that will result, which is basically an impossible burden to meet. I think the thing is, GE plants have been around since the 1990s. I think that's long enough to be able to tell whether or not it would have an effect. Plus, they are rigorously tested.
1: Not everyone agrees. Doug Gurion Sherman is a plant pathologist.
2: Well, I just have to strenuously disagree with that.
1: He's with UCS, the Union of Concerned Scientists Food and Environment Program.
2: They are tested, but as a former regulator at EPA and advisor to FDA, my take is that this is certainly not rigorous testing by any means. And I think there's, you know, the epitome of that is the FDA process, which is not an approval process. It's a voluntary process. Industry decides what tests it will do. There's no detailed guidance on what those tests are. And at the end of the process, FDA writes the letter back and says, we understand that you, Company X, assert that this crop is safe. And I'm paraphrasing, and we remind you that it's your responsibility to make sure it's safe. That's not a rigorous testing process.
3: Ronald Lindsay, for example, points to multiple reports from the National Academy of Sciences that conclude there's just no danger. You can't point to somebody and say, you know, that person ate genetically modified wheat or corn or something like that, and, you know, they've got this terrible medical condition. So what sorts of problems could you foresee as being real?
2: I think there's two important points to make here. First of all, there's never been any testing of the population any significant testing so that you know whether there has been harm or not is not shown or proven there may very well not be but it's not a scientifically sound statement second the kinds of risks that have been identified are potential new allergies or toxicities either from the engineered gene which i should remind people can come completely out of the food supply so from completely different organisms or from unintended changes in the plants that could potentially alter its toxicity.
3: We were talking about all the traits you can engineer into plants, and one I mentioned is tolerance to herbicide. Glyphosate is the most widely used herbicide in the United States, and it's the active ingredient in Roundup, created by Monsanto. Now, when a plant is Roundup ready, it's been engineered to tolerate spraying with this herbicide. Just as the use of
1: antibiotics leads to super germs that resist the drug, heavy use of Roundup leads to weeds, such as horseweed and giant ragweed, that resist the herbicide. So now farmers have to spray more and more glyphosate, even adding a secondary weed killer
3: to the crops. But all that herbicide sprayed on crops makes some people nervous about safety. Yet, some scientists and farmers make the case of preserving the effectiveness of glyphosate because, for one, it's less toxic than the alternatives.
0: This herbicide, glyphosate, is um, much, much less toxic than other herbicides. So glyphosate is considered non-toxic by the EPA, whereas other herbicides are considered moderately toxic. Well, do we know for
1: certain that glyphosate has a benign effect on the environment?
0: Well, you know, it's it's classified by the EPA as non-toxic. Virtually all herbicides, other herbicides used are considered moderately toxic. So, anytime you displace a more toxic herbicide with an herbicide considered non-toxic, you're coming out ahead.
1: I'm going to push it a bit because there is some alarm concerning this particular herbicide. And it has been characterized, and and you can tell me what you think of this, as the DDT of our time. What what do you make of that characterization?
0: Well, that's incorrect. DDT has clearly been shown to be toxic to wildlife. And of course, Rachel Carson, one of the great environmentalists of our time, uh, brought that issue up. Glyphosate is less toxic than a tablespoon of salt. So I think that the bigger question, which is important question, is, well, should we spray herbicides at all? I mean, I think you have to consider the cost and, and who's benefiting. So if you look in less developed countries, these types of herbicide tolerant crops are not as useful as in developed countries because many farmers can't afford to buy these herbicides. Most farmers in the developed world use herbicides. And so the question is, if they're going to use herbicides, we should all hope that they use the least toxic herbicide that they can use.
1: Doug Gurian-Sherman says a union of concerned scientists have a different interpretation on the effect of glyphosate on the environment.
2: Well, it's not an area that we've explored deeply, but I think it's clearly not uh, benign. There have been a number of studies that have shown that it can harm soil, different types of soil microorganisms. On the other hand, um, it's not persistent like DDT, certainly has not been shown to do some of the things that DDT can do. Uh, You know, it's somewhere in between.
3: Well, given that farmers, at least in the developed world, are going to use pest control compounds, herbicides, doesn't it make sense that they would use the least toxic herbicide they could find? And isn't that currently glyphosate?
2: Yes, although I think it's coincidence that that was the most successful herbicide-tolerant crop. It's also an extremely effective and relatively cheap herbicide, which I think is the reason it's widely used. But I think it's important to understand that the efficacy of glyphosate is rapidly being lost. Um, This is widely recognized. There are now millions of acres of weeds resistant to these herbicides. They're putting some cotton farmers out of business in the southeast and there was just a weed summit sponsored by the National Academy of Sciences in which one of the chief weed scientists of USDA said that the resistance caused by the use of these crops in this herbicide is a game changer and a lot of hand wringing about what to do about this but what it demonstrates is that the whole direction that these crops at least the current ones and their current development is pushing Agriculture is the wrong direction. It's away from sustainable agriculture. It's toward types of agriculture that we should acknowledge are highly productive but are not very sustainable and continue to have major impacts on the environment.
1: Both sides in the GM debate saw the weed resistance issue coming, says Ronald Lindsay, but inconsistent farming practices have contributed to it.
4: What's happened is that the number of farmers have not used traditional Crop rotation techniques have planted corn year after year after year using the GE corn, and they have applied glyphosate liberally to keep away weeds. And over time, there have been some weeds that have developed resistance. So that is beginning to be a problem, but it's not a problem that's resulted from the GE technology per se. It's resulted from poor farm techniques. I mean, it's a basic tenet of pet management, which is, You don't use the same method of, you know, cultivation and control year after year.
1: Seth, there are a lot of issues in this debate over the safety of GM foods, and nothing seems to be clear-cut.
3: Yeah, well, the thing about it is this isn't something we have to worry about for the future. Obviously, looking around this store, this is an issue that's affecting us now.
1: Coming up, how flood resistant rice helps poor farmers and a challenge to the claim that GM crops have greater improved
3: yield. It's OMG GMO on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking from Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former
1: Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places.
3: Welcome back to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking from big picture science. As we walk the aisles here of our local grocery store, we inevitably confront the thorny debate about genetically modified foods. And
1: one big issue that's in play, how do we feed the world? Proponents of genetic modification say that the technology is a necessary response to a growing world population and an ever-increasing need for
3: food. In South and Southeast Asia, where 25% of the world's rice is grown and 75 million people live on less than a dollar a day, flooding is a major threat to rice crops.
1: Along with her work with Indian and Bangladeshi scientists on creating rice that resists disease, which we heard about earlier, plant pathologist Pamela Ronald and her colleagues, including David McKill at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines, have spent 15 years developing flood-resistant rice.
0: So rice does like to grow in water, but if it's completely submerged for more than three days, the farmer loses their crop. There have been terrible floodings in Bangladesh and India over the last four years. These floods are expected to increase in occurrence and intensity because of changes associated with the global climate. And so I've had a long time collaboration with plant breeder, David McKill, And he identified through conventional breeding a region of the chromosome that conferred incredible tolerance to flooding. So plants that carry this locus can survive underwater for two weeks. So we were able to isolate that gene, And the International Rice Research Institute group of breeders were able to use that genetic information and introduce this gene very precisely into varieties that are favored by farmers and locally adapted. And it's been quite successful. The farmers are seeing three to five fold increase in yield and it's now being grown by over a million farmers. So that shows you the power of genetics to benefit very poor farmers. But the question
1: of yield is a sticking point for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Doug Gurian Sherman evaluated the claims for GM crops in the 2009 report, Failure to Yield.
3: Doug, as the 21st century kind of clanks along here, we're facing a changing climate. We're facing growing population, maybe to 10 or 15 billion people by mid-century. Proponents of GM technology say that this can help poor farmers in third world countries increase yields. Uh, does it really increase yields? Is this a significant benefit of GM?
2: Um, at best, the record is mixed. In the U.S., we've looked at this very carefully, and for the major U.S. genetically engineered crops, there's been little or no yield increase. And, in contrast, other methods like breeding... Have increased yields pretty dramatically. So where genetic engineering has to go up against other technologies that also could be deployed in the developing world, it has not fared very well in terms of productivity increases. in In uh, developing countries, there have been some studies. That, uh, they're difficult to sort out. The quality of the studies varies, and some of them so- show some significant yield benefit. But we have to put that in the context of these are. Very poor farmers, resource poor farmers on very poor soil, and virtually anything you can give them will dramatically increase yield. So there's nothing at all special about genetic engineering.
1: Dr. Ronald, I'm going to push you on the subject of yield and whether GM crops have lived up to their promise of greater yield. The Union of Concerned Scientists report has challenged the claim that GM farming yields are greater than those of conventional farming methods.
0: And is there a consensus over whether genetically engineered crops do have greater yield. Yeah, the consensus is is very clear, and uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists also agrees that the issue in the United States has not been yield because we have very high-yielding agriculture here. The issue in the United States has been toxicity, Um, and so there's been massive reduction in the use of insecticides on cotton, for example. I don't think the Union of Concerned Scientists would dispute that. It's peer-reviewed. And just to point out, the Union of Concerned Scientists does not carry out studies, nor do they publish in peer-reviewed journals, so it was an opinion paper that you're citing, and it was focused simply on the issues in the United States, and they did not address issues of reduced insecticide use, which is all very clear. When you go outside the United States, the yields have been tremendous. So I think the number in India for cotton is something like a 40% increase in yield And the reason is farmers often cannot afford to buy insecticides, so they they lose the crop.
3: Okay, well, rising above the din of the debate about the pros and cons of genetically modified food are voices from scientists and farmers calling for alternatives – Other options for how we go about feeding the world.
1: Often the issue of genetically engineered foods is presented as either or. Either use GM technology or abandon it. Another one is either go genetically engineered or go organic. This last one plays out loudly here in California, but is it accurate to say we have just two options? Ron Lindsay says the large study carried out by the National Academy of Sciences that found GM foods safe to eat also advocated the promotion of alternative methods of farming.
4: You shouldn't look at organic as something that we should do instead of using GE plants or just regular conventional farming, nor should you look at GE plants as a panacea that will do away with the need for alternative farming methods.
3: I think that many people have the idea that organic food is something like, I don't know, free-range chickens, except, you know, they're rooted in place, and that, you know, these are crops that are grown uh, as they might have been grown, you know, 200 years ago without really any intervention at all.
4: No, that's that's incorrect. Uh, in fact, there are differences in how organic farmers carry out their cultivation, but First of all, there's no ban on use of pesticides, for example, in organic farming, and a number of organic farmers use pesticides. The only difference is the pesticide has to come from an organism. And this is actually one of the ironies. The organism that is typically used by organic farmers is the Bacillus thuringiensis, which is the source for the BT gene that Monsanto has placed in its corn. So, ultimately, you're still using BT, it's just that Monsanto has injected it directly into the corn, whereas some organic farmers spray BT from from crop dusters. But organic farmers can use pesticides. Organic farmers also sometimes enhance their products during processing. A common technique, for example, for organically raised apples is to spray them with ethylene, which is a chemical, a harmless chemical, but still a chemical which essentially enhances the color of the apples. Now, not all organic farmers use those techniques, but a number of them do, and there is no regulation that prohibits organic farmers from using those techniques.
1: In addition to her work as a plant geneticist, Pamela Ronald has written a book with her husband, Tomorrow's Table, Organic Farming, Genetics, and the Future of Food. It's about a possible alliance between GM food and organic.
0: My husband, who is an organic farmer, he's been farming organically for 30 years. You know, we, of course, we, we talk about these issues. We're plant people. We love plants. We love food. And so we wrote this book to talk about the commonalities between organic approaches and the approaches of, of seed And so when you think about it, every farmer, whether they're they're an organic farmer or a conventional farmer, they need modern seed varieties. They rely, organic farmers rely on hybrid seed, for example. They rely on seed produced by companies. Very few organic farmers produce their own seed. They're always looking for improved, interesting seed. They take seed from many sources. The only seed that they're not allowed to grow is genetically engineered seed, And on the other hand, conventional farmers that are growing genetically engineered seed need to integrate their farming practices because you can't just rely on seed alone to solve all your problems. There's ample examples where we need to integrate robust seed with important practices that organic farmers use, such as rotating crops, and enhancing genetic diversity. So it sounds like you're saying that mm. traditional farming could benefit from organic
1: farming, or maybe contemporary farming can benefit from organic farming. But do you think that organic farmers, um, are you saying that they should adopt some of these genetically engineered crops?
0: No, I don't I don't think they will adopt genetically engineered crops. Uh, my husband was president of the California Certified Organic Farmers when um, this issue came up, and the organic community. Consumers don't want to have genetically engineered crops, so we're not advocating for that. But I think the organic community would be wise to advocate that other people use genetically engineered crops because it massively reduces the use of insecticides, which is a major goal of organic farming.
3: Well, as we walk the aisles of our local grocery store here, some of the packages, such as this box of cereal here, have labels that state that the product does not contain GMO. But nowhere do I see a label that says it does. If
1: nutrition is a mandatory labeling, genetic modification
5: must be mandatory labeling too. Every nation in Europe, uh, Japan, 50
1: countries around the world, they give their citizens the right to know if they're eating genetically engineered foods so that they can opt out of the experiment. Uh, what happened. But many in the public do support labeling. Doug, does the Union of Concerned Scientists support the labeling of GM
2: foods? Yes. I mean, as a transparency issue in a consumer society, in a democracy, we think people should have the right to decide for themselves whether they want to eat these crops for any of a number of reasons. You know, and generally, we, like in this country, feel that the free market should be allowed to kind of run its course. So. You know, the industry, by opposing this, acts like it has something to hide. It touts the technology. It should therefore be proud of it and be happy to have it labeled.
3: But would it really help consumers? I mean, it might just promote a negative image of GM foods. Oh, these these are special. Watch out. It, well, I
2: think, I think that depends uh, how labeling is done. You know, if you put a big skull and crossbones associated with the labeling, I think that would certainly be the implication. But, you know, we have all kinds of things on food labels and most of them are not considered harmful. So I don't think by having something on a label, there should be any implication inherently that it's harmful.
3: Finally, Doug, do you eat any GM foods yourself?
2: I actually try to avoid them, not because I am worried that they are necessarily harmful. And frankly, I think the current ones there's a very good chance they're not harmful. But because I am not confident in the regulatory system, which is our basis for deciding in a scientific way whether they're harmful or not, I would rather err on the safe side from my perspective and avoid them.
1: So Dr. Ronald, as someone who is developing genetically engineered rice, with everything that you said to us today, would you say you have no
0: reservations about proceeding with genetically engineered crops? You bring up a very good question, and I really want to be clear. I'm not a proponent of genetic engineering. I'm just sort of trying to provide some information about what we know. But there are going to be many genetically engineered crops that come up in the future, and we cannot simply say, well, they're all safe to eat, because it depends on the trait that's introduced. It depends on the crop, and every crop needs to be looked at On a case-by-case basis and we really need to ask the hard questions. Is this crop safe to eat? Is it going to have a benefit for farm sustainability or economic viability of farmers in terms of reducing insecticides? And importantly in the less developed world, are we going to be able to allow small farmers to produce more food safely on the land that they are farming now?
1: Thanks for the expert opinions we've heard on genetically engineered food in this program from Pamela Ronald, professor in the Department of Plant Pathology and the Genome Center at the University of California, Davis, and the co-author of Tomorrow's Table, Organic Farming, Genetics, and the Future of
3: Food. Also to Ronald Lindsay, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Inquiry and author of Future Bioethics, Overcoming Taboos, Myths, and Dogmas.
1: And Doug Gurion-Sherman, Plant Pathologist and Senior Scientist at the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists in Washington, D.C.
3: You've been listening to Skeptic Check, OMG, GMO, from Big Picture Science. Uh, we're leaving the grocery store, but not this topic.
2: Hello, how are you?
3: Great, great. I hope we haven't bought too much food here. <laughs> Fine. Coming up, a documentary that questions the practice of multinational seed companies in India. Also, genetic engineering in worlds off Earth.
1: So total will be 1652.
3: Okay. If any of those foods aren't tasty, can we bring those back for a partial refund?
6: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy
3: Welcome back to Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science. We've been discussing the safety of genetically modified foods.
1: But some say the safety issues in the case of GM technology are distinct and should be examined separately from those involving the conduct
3: of the multinational companies that sell it. Mika Pellet is a filmmaker, and he went to India to document the effect that the use of and the dependence on GM technology has had among cotton farmers. His film, Bitter Seeds, the third in his globalization trilogy, records the resulting cycle of poverty that's driving some farmers there to commit suicide.
1: Now there's a general misperception, says Mika Pellid, that prior to genetically modified crops, Indian farmers used only conventional seeds, but hybrid seeds became widespread during the Green Revolution. In some cases, the seeds were successful in producing higher yields, but they were also problematic. They required more and more pesticides and fertilizers, and ultimately, the land became less fertile.
3: That's when the GM seeds arrived. Bitter Seeds opens in a cotton-growing community in central India. Men from Anchor Seeds, one of a dozen local companies that licensed the technology from the multinational seed company Monsanto, walked through the village selling the product to farmers. The seeds had been genetically altered to be toxic to the cotton-destroying bollworm. But the insect has developed a resistance to the pesticide, and Mika Pellet discovered that secondary pests have now stepped in. I
1: spoke with Mika Pellet following the premiere of Bitter Seeds at the San Francisco International Film Festival.
7: What I see in India where I went to make this film is that farming as we know it has become an endangered species. The majority of the farmers of India are small landholders and they cannot afford to continue farming as they have done for centuries because genetically modified seeds require a more industrial type of farming where the economy of scale comes into the picture. You have much larger fields. You're using uh, machinery. None of this exists over there. And so we are at an age when hundreds of millions of farmers are being forced off the land.
1: So at the moment when these men are distributing the pamphlets and explaining to the farmers what the benefits are of this genetically modified seed, what options are being presented to the farmer, or realistically what options do these farmers have, whether or not to buy these seeds or go on their own?
7: The farmers have, in fact, very little choice. It is hard for us to imagine, but in fact there are no other seeds available to them. So once they've moved to hybrid seeds, the hybrid seeds already were non-renewable, meaning you have to buy them every year. You cannot save the seeds from your own plants. So that option is long gone, that you'll get your own seeds from your plants. And because the shops don't sell conventional seeds, they don't sell hybrid seeds, they only sell genetically modified seeds. That's the only option that the farmer has. Now, the farmer needs to borrow money at the beginning of the season, just like farmers do in this country. But most of the farmers in this area can no longer get a loan from the bank because they haven't paid back their last loan. In fact, the figure is that about 80% of the farmers have to resort to loan sharks. And Usually they have to mortgage their land as a collateral because that's really the only asset that they have. And in fact, that's what we see at the beginning of the film, that the protagonist of this film, uh, Ram Krishna, has to sign away his land in order to get the money to get the season started.
1: Now, there are a couple different narratives that are running through this film and one is the economic narrative that you just described, but the other is a social or almost an emotional personal narrative and uh, one of the protagonists is in the film is a young woman and her name is Manjusha Amberwar and she also lives in this village and she has ambitions of becoming a journalist, which, which I can relate to, and she begins investigating what's behind a number of farmers' suicides. What prompts her to do this investigation? And why is this also a personal journey, not just a professional journey for this young woman?
7: Well, I'm going to reveal, I guess, something that the viewer only finds out about a third into the film, which is that this young woman who indeed is determined to become a journalist is also fueled by her personal history. Her father, who was the head of the village council, was the first farmer in her village to commit suicide and that took place already a few years ago and she is consumed with wanting to know what happened as as a way to just make peace with the fact and being able to move on with her own life
1: she's a remarkable character because she's a young woman she's suffered the the loss of her father she's very steady and brave as she goes around and asks these questions and she keeps claiming that she doesn't know how to be a journalist but watching her go up and ask the difficult questions i would say she was doing a pretty good job She talks to the widow and to the children of one man who committed suicide. How do they explain the reason for the suicide? They talk about debt, they talk about the seeds. Do they ever lay the blame at the feet of Monsanto? How do they explain the death of that father and husband?
7: It was really interesting to me to see that very few of the farmers in India are aware of Monsanto. So we have to understand that these people have very little education they don't watch news on TV or they don't have access to the internet. They don't even read newspapers. The name Monsanto does not appear on the seats packets that they're buying. The seats packets will carry the name of the local brand. So most of them are not really aware of Monsanto being behind all of this. And even if you tell them the name, they never heard of it before. So it, it's meaningless to them. We actually filmed uh, Manjusha interviewing A couple of widows of farmers Uh, in the final film, we only include one of them, but one of the repeating themes is that all these widows say, I had no idea that my husband was going to do this. And the most common form of suicide is the farmer goes to the field and drinks the bottle of pesticide.
1: One of the startling statistics in the film is that an Indian farmer is killing himself every 30 minutes. And I wonder if you could explain that statistic, and it seems mind-boggling. And also the relationship between the seeds, the crops, this hopeless cycle of debt and the suicides and how one leads to the other.
7: The numbers uh, on farmer suicides in India are that for the past 16 years, and by now it's probably 17, but when I made the film and, and did the, the math, in 16 years they had over 250,000 farmers who killed themselves. and. If you just do the math, you come to one, it's about 49 a day, which is one every 30 minutes. I myself thought that it must be exaggerated until I researched it. So the farmers commit suicide out of despair. Despair because they can no longer provide for the families, because they're about to lose their land, because they sometimes see all of their belongings being taken out of the house by a creditor and also because many of them are settled with a daughter at marrying age and they can't afford a dowry.
1: So this is another arc of tension. We're wondering what will happen to Ram Krishna. Now he's a farmer. Tell me what happens to him, what lengths he goes to to try to save that
7: crop. Ram Krishna had to sign away his land in order to get a loan so the stakes are very high for him.
1: And just to be clear, he wants the loan so that he can buy some of these seeds because at that moment his, his land is not producing any crop and he needs a better seed.
7: Right, he needs the seeds, he needs the fertilizers and he needs the pesticides. Now, Genetically modified seeds are supposed to give you a higher yield, but in order to give you the higher yield, you need to give the plant more nutrient, which means fertilizers. In order to put the fertilizers, you need to put water in the ground, because the ground must be moist. However, these farmers depend on rain. They don't have irrigation. So they're not able to give the fertilizer when the genetically modified crops require them, because if there is no rain at that time, they cannot put a fertilizer in the ground. So first, uh, Ramakrishna's crop has a very hard time because the rain doesn't come, and he cannot put fertilizer on the ground. Then the rain comes, and we move forward, and then his crop is attacked by the mealybug, which is one of these secondary pests that have been attacking the cotton fields once the bollworm has been taken out of the picture. At the beginning of the film you see the seed salesman promising that there is a chemical formula that he can apply that will take care of the mealybug, but it doesn't work and he actually loses half of his field to the mealybug.
1: Is that the scene where he is spraying this chemical and the chemical it seems like half is going on the crop and half of it is dripping onto him. He has these sandals, they're open-toed sandals and the chemical is sort of spraying all over.
7: Yeah, these uh, pesticides are actually very toxic to humans, but there is absolutely no education of the farmers of that fact. Supposedly, you you should be in a bodysuit when you apply them, but none of these farmers have ever seen a bodysuit, let alone could ever afford it. So he's certainly also risking his own health big time.
1: Now, part of the suspense of this is, is what happens to this farmer, Ram Krishna. Are you willing to tell us what happens to him, or the, the fate of him at the end of the film?
7: Uh, I- You know, I never tell the ending of my films. The suspense is built because we worry about his fate. He fits perfectly into the demographics of farmers who kill themselves. He's got only three acres of land. He had to put his land as a collateral to get a loan. He's paying very high interest rates. He has a daughter at marrying age. And there's a scene where we see dowry negotiations and he cannot afford. Uh, So all the ingredients are there. Regarding um, where does that leave us, my favorite question at the end of my films, when the lights go up, is always uh, what can we do about it? Now, I'm a filmmaker, I'm not an activist, but I hook up my films with activist organizations, community groups, NGOs, who do uh, work on solutions. All of these problems are man-made, and so they all have man-made solutions. You don't need to just be concerned with what happens in India. There's something you can do here.
1: Thank you very much for speaking with us.
7: Thank you.
3: Mika Pellet is a filmmaker. His documentary about the plight of Indian farmers, Bitter Seeds, is the third in his globalization trilogy,
1: Well, Seth, if one thing is certain about the GMO issue, uh, nothing is certain. And there are many issues within this debate, and they all need to be looked at separately.
3: Well, they are, and it's also a highly emotional issue, and that, I think, complicates things. I mean, you want the best science, of course, but, you know, you're talking about food. That's something people put in their bodies. They take that very seriously. This is not about, you know, uh, billboard litter or cleaning up the highways or things like that. This is something that strikes home literally and figuratively. The genetically engineered food debate isn't going away anytime soon. In fact, it may eventually spread its wings to space. And in space, there's less flexibility in what we can cultivate. If humans travel to Mars and settle on the Red Planet or create a lunar outpost or even just go into orbit around the Earth, well, they'll need to eat. And our terrestrial crops just don't travel well.
1: The Martian landscape is not that of Iowa or India. It's dry, bitterly cold, and possessed of only a very thin atmosphere. We can't grow there what we grow here. So food genetically engineered to sprout in space may be the only option for living off the planet. John Cumbers is a synthetic biologist working in Northern California.
5: I think a bioengineer might want to take uh, synthetic life to Mars or the moon. They might want to use the resources that we have there in order to convert those resources into things that we have here, like food or biomaterials or fuels.
3: So the advantages of doing this are to produce organisms that would serve human needs eventually? Absolutely. At the moment, we have this mentality that we have to take
5: everything with us from Earth if we want to settle the solar system. But it costs $50,000 a kilogram to send anything into space. So if we can engineer organisms to make things in space, then we
3: don't have to take everything with us. Give me some example of the kinds of conditions that engineered organisms might be able to be... uh, better adapted to for example.
5: I think that's a really good question and it's really difficult to think about life surviving on the surface of Mars or surviving on the surface of the moon. Clearly there isn't life on the surface of Mars or on the surface of the moon. Maybe there's life in the permafrost on Mars. My research is all about trying to use biotechnology in a contained environment so that we don't have to deal with the environment of Mars. I don't think life is going to survive on the surface of Mars. I don't think I could engineer life to survive on the surface of Mars with the climate that Mars has at the moment. But we could certainly be growing productive organisms under the surface of Mars, underground, or contained in a bioreactor that's shielded with
3: water or shielded with lead. Sort of a specialized greenhouse for Mars. Exactly. We call it a bioreactor. Bioreactor. (laughs) It sounds like it might produce kilowatt hours. I I don't know. Do you have any idea of what sorts of crops or plants or whatever that we might actually be talking about here? I'm particularly interested in microbes. If you fly into the big
5: island airport on Hawaii and you look over your shoulder, you can see these huge green ponds of slime. That green slime is the cyanobacterium spirulina, as it's commonly called. And this is a health food supplement that you can buy in the stores just down the road. So mostly microbes. In other words, these would be, I don't know, big tanks of slimy stuff. Delicious, nutritious, uh, slimy stuff shake for breakfast, one for lunch, and a proper meal in the evening.
3: (laughs) Okay. And is there any particular slime that we have here on Earth already that looks like a good candidate to be uh, adapted for space? Um, They're
5: pretty disgusting. Vegemite, marmite, these things are all made from yeast extract. They're
3: microbes. They grow in vats. (laughs) Disgusting. I'm sure the Australians wouldn't agree entirely (laughs) with with your comment there, but but I happen to agree with you. I think Vegemite should be restricted to industrial purposes. You say that we're not trying to develop organisms that might be able to survive on Mars by just throwing them out the window and maybe giving them a bit of water occasionally. I mean, you don't see that as something in the near future. But suppose we eventually terraform Mars and we just change the environment of the planet. Then, presumably, we could have plants that would grow on their own. Absolutely. If you can change the environment, thicken the atmosphere so
5: it shields uh, UV and gamma radiation, thicken the atmosphere so that the planet warms up, then I'd be all for promoting any existing Martian life that might exist in the
3: permafrost or putting new life there that's going to benefit humanity. A lot of people are probably thinking, "Oh, wait a minute, if there's already life on Mars, uh, don't we owe it an existence? I mean, are we justified in going there and sort of, sort of I don't know, wiping it out by bringing in engineered competitors? Um, If there were life on Mars already,
5: first I'd want to study it. If there's Martian life already on the surface of Mars, then let's encourage it. Let's give it a home and and, uh, let's help it procreate. If there's not, then if there's no life on Mars, then I think it's fair game for Earth microbes to go there and do their best.
3: John Cumbers, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you.
1: John Cumbers is a synthetic biologist working in Northern California. Thanks to our 100% human production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler.
3: Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned
1: to Skeptic Check, OMG, GMO. We devote one episode a month of Big Picture Science to critical thinking. You can find more of our program on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can find it at Big Picture Science. And you can leave your comments there as well.
3: And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio because you find it, I don't know, less synthetic, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program.
6: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily
2: Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups